0: So, you are the, the brave people that brave the uh, torrential downpours we have here in the desert to come out here a little bit about Postgres. Um, for the next hour, we're going to talk about running Postgres inside of AWS, um, whether it's going to be self managed or one of our managed options. So, we're going to talk about what those managed options are, how you deploy Postgres, some security aspects monitoring and managing those, those deployments, and then we'll get into building an application. And when you're talking about managed databases inside of AWS, and we're talking about relational databases, we're here talking about Postgres, AWS has a number of different database options, but for relational databases, uh, you're talking about the Relational Database Service, or RDS. It comes in a number of different engines. of Aurora, which comes with MySQL or Postgres compatibility. We have the open source engines, Postgres, MySQL, and MariaDB. And we have the commercial engines: SQL Server, and Oracle. So you have the option to pick what fits best for your business, but we're gonna focus on Postgres. But regardless of which one you choose, they all have the same basic areas that have their, so it all gives you, makes it easy to deploy, gives you high availability and durability, right? including performance and scale. But why Postgres? Postgres has been in active development for over 30 years. It's not a new database. It has a lot of popularity recently, but it's been around for a long time. It actually started back in 1986 as a university project, at the University of California at Berkeley. And it was there for 10 years until it was picked up by the open source community uh, by a few folks uh, one of the core members is, is here in the audience today, um, and he's been working on it for over those last 20 years. Right? So it has a rock-solid history of being able to handle businesses' applications, and it's been growing year over year. And it can scale into the biggest, some of the biggest businesses in the world, including Amazon.com. So a lot of Amazon.com has migrated from Oracle out to Aurora Postgres and RDS Postgres to the point that as you're buying things this holiday season, all your packages coming in to your house uh, is going through the fulfillment centers are all running on Postgres. But when you choose Postgres, you could choose to run it self-managed on EC2 or you could choose one of the managed options. The vast majority of people are running stock Postgres. If you're running stock Postgres, one of the manage options will work perfectly for you. There are some people who have custom built options inside of Postgres. Maybe they made some modifications to the source code. They might have extended it with a custom built C extension, right? or they have a custom compile time parameter. Some of those situations, you would have to run it on your own in a, in a self-managed environment on EC2. But most people and most businesses are running Postgres the same as you'd get out of the Postgres repositories where you're just going to do yum install Postgres or app get install install Postgres. Those types of situations, you could have one of our uh, fully managed options, right? Either RDS Postgres or Aurora Postgres. When you get managed Postgres on AWS, you get it provisioned. So if you were going to do this yourself in a self-managed environment, you'd have to install Postgres. You'd be able to get one of the newer versions of Postgres, 9, 6, 10, or 11, with over 60 extensions. One of the unique features about Postgres is its ability to extend and add additional functionality to Postgres. There you can get additional data types, additional index types, or other functionality to help you manage it. So we, what we ship is over 60 of the most common extensions that you're going to need for your business. And then job number one as a DBA is to make sure you have your data. So you need backup and recovery. If you're running it self-managed, you'd have to set up a backup schedule. You might use one of the open source tools like PG Backrest or Barman. You'd have to choose that and set that up in a backup server and then you have to test it and make sure that you could actually recover. Your backups are only good as of the last time you've actually tested your recovery, right? Because the last thing you want is to be able to recover in an emergency and it doesn't work. You need to be able to test your backups. Then you need something highly available. Your application is dependent on the database being there. It needs to be able to handle infrastructure blips. It needs to be able to handle uh, you know any sort of situation if a network goes down, a CPU goes down, fan, other things, you need something highly available. And you need to do that without data loss. As a relational database, if you insert a row, you want that to come back. If you said commit to that, that, for that transaction, it should always be there and come back the same way. And when you have something set up, you need it secure. This is your crown jewels for your company. It's your data, your relational data. That has your most sensitive customer data in there. It has to be secure. You need to be able to say who is supposed to be able to connect and see that data and when. And then you need to be able to manage that and be able to make sure what you set up is working properly. So the... The first one we're going to talk about is RDS Postgres. RDS Postgres has been around over six years. So it has some of the older versions of Postgres, going back to 9.4 through 11. And the the most recent version of Postgres, Postgres 12, which was released by the community back in early October, is available in preview now. So if you want to test some of the new features, and we'll go into a couple of the new features later in the talk, uh, you're able to try them and play with them now. then there's Aurora Postgres. Aurora Postgres has been built from the ground up to leverage the AWS services. Instead of writing things out to a local EBS volume, what we've done is created a, a, a storage layer that's aware of the Postgres transaction log format. And what that lets us do is be able to offload a lot of the things a relational database does into the storage layer and be able to scale that and when you're writing to it what we do is we write a four or six quorum across three availability zones so when you insert a row into a, a table it would be inserted six times into into six storage nodes across three availability zones waiting for four of that four of those to they acknowledge back before it returns back to your client and pushing all that down into the storage nodes that allows us to get two to three X better throughput on some workloads. It also gives us higher durability by allowing us to have things across three availability zones so your database could tolerate losing an entire availability zone and still be working. And another deployment option for Aurora is serverless. Serverless takes away the, the need to guess of what instance sizes you need. It allows it to scale up and down. So if you have a very variable workload, it allows you to scale up the instance sizes as you need more resources. And then when everybody goes home at the end of the day and you're not using that database, it'll scale down and pause itself down to zero. And then when the first person comes back in in the morning and starts accessing the database, it'll spin back up again and you'll start being able to access your database. Also available in Aurora Serverless is the data API. So this allows you to connect to your database from things like Lambda functions without creating a database connection. You, connect, you access your database through a REST API. So you don't have to create a JDBC driver, or a JDBC connection through the JDBC driver or no ODBC connection. You could do it through a REST API. So when you're choosing what type of managed service you're gonna use You may want to be in close lockstep with the community, which is RDS Postgres. And you may have smaller instance sizes. You may need that uh, higher throughput of of Aurora or that higher durability guarantees across three availability zones. Or you will have a very variable workload where you can take advantage of serverless or you want to leverage the data API. But we're going to focus on RDS Postgres. So when you choose RDS Postgres, the first thing you're gonna to have to decide is what instance size you want. You're not locked in stone when you choose an instance size. You could change that over the course of time as your, your needs grow. Uh, you could scale up and down as you need to. But you may have uh, a small database uh, where you, something in a T-Series would work fine for you. Or you might have something where you have a general purpose need where it's just a, a workhorse database, uh, something in the M family would work pr- uh, perfectly well. You know, if you have a large data set and you need a lot of memory in order to keep your hot data set in cache, the R family lets you go up to 96 vCPUs and 768 gigabytes of RAM. allows you to go a, a extremely large instance sizes. But databases are all about I.O. Right. You're writing to the to storage, and you need to be able to get that back out again. You can choose either GP2 for general provisioned, or you could have provisioned IOPS. Right. It really depends on what your latency requirements are. How performance-sensitive is your application? Right. You know, If you need to, on some instance sizes, you could go all the way up to 80,000 provisioned IOPS. A new feature we recently released is auto scaling. Previously, you'd have to decide how big is my database and how much is it going to grow. You'd have to guess how big is my database going to be a year from now and pre provision that so you're not getting something in the m- middle of your business day in order to be able to get an alert and be able to scale out your storage. Auto scale allows you to check different conditions and automatically grow that as your database grows. Then, when you're setting up your, your database instance, you need to make a decision whether or not it's a production database or dev test. If you dis- say it's a production database, we're by default going to check the box to set it up for multi AZ. And multi AZ gives you high availability. When we, d- we do that, we'll set up a standby instance on a second, uh, on a, a second availability zone. And then we'll set up synchronous replication from that primary to the standby. So there's no data loss. In the event that something goes down, the primary goes away, that standby is gonna be promoted to the new primary with all your data in there that was committed. And a new standby will be created and that synchronous replication will will go back in the other direction. And then your applications will reconnect. It'll check DNS to find out where, where I'm connecting and it'll it'll automatically repropagated it to DNS that your, your host has changed and your applications will reconnect to the primary. All automatic for you. And building off of that is backups. Backups are hugely important, right? By default, we're gonna set up backups if you enable you want backups for seven days retention. Make it longer, make it 14 or 21 days. The number of times that I've seen run into issues and said I want to see what the database was two weeks ago when I made that change and just confirm what I thought is right and I want to be able to do that, save me a number of times. Keep those longer backup windows. Seven days you don't always catch everything. But what we do when you have Multi-AZ set up, we'll take a snapshot during your backup window off the standby instance. If you don't have Multi-AZ set up we'll take it off the primary but in order to get a consistent backup, we'll temporarily pause that vo- write that volume in order to give you a consistent snapshot. You don't get that if you have multi AZ setup. What we'll then do is also capture the transaction logs. So, Postgres, as it's writing to the database, it'll write to the, the wall log, the write ahead log. Right? So, everything that's written to the database is written there. And it, Every five minutes, or as those logs are filled up, they're pushed out to S3. And what that'll do is give you point-in-time recovery up to five-minute windows. So in the event something goes down at 10 a.m. and your backups were at uh, midnight, it will roll forward to 10 a.m. So when you have something provisioned, you need to secure it. And when you're talking about security, there's multiple different layers you have to go through uh, for databases. One is around encryption. You need encryption for in transit over SSL and at rest using KMS. Turn on KMS encryption for your databases. So this way you don't have to get that requirement later and worry about encrypting things later. It's just a checkbox when you're doing it through the console. Turn it on. It'll save a lot of heartache later. There's no, no major performance impact for doing that. Just turn it on. Then you need to authenticate your users. Right? We need to know who we're connecting to and whether or not we trust them. Right? And then we need to audit them. Right? We need to trust those users, but we also verify that they're doing what we expect them to be doing. So when we are talking about network encryption, we're using SSL. By default, RDS instances have SSL enabled. So if you have SSL turned on on your client and the SSL libraries are there, Postgres will use SSL when it's talking to the server. But to ensure that that happens, there's a a parameter in your parameter groups, RDS force SSL. If you turn that on, the server will reject any connections that are not using SSL. Turn that on. And then it's up to the client to request what type of SSL, how deep is it going to go into verifying that SSL connection. So there's a parameter in your connection string called SSL mode. Set it to SSL mode to require. By default, Postgres says prefer. That means try to use SSL connections, but if it's not available on the server, just do it over clear text. We want on both sides to guarantee that we're going to use SSL. We don't want to connect if they're not using SSL. So set that to require. And then when you connect to the database, there is a system view called pgstat.ssl where you could see your SSL connections. There's There's a row in that view for every connection to the database. So here we can see we're connected to SSL and we're using TSL. Uh, version 1.2. But from the client side, we could go further, right? We could go and verify that we're actually connecting to the host that we expect we to. Some organizations have the requirement in order to be able to verify the host name that we're connecting to so there's not a man in the middle of the tech, right? And when you're doing that, you need to set up the, the certificate in order to get that. So it has to match the same root certificate that, your server, that matches your server certificate. You could download that off of the, the AWS site. Right. But RDS has been around 10 years and root certificates expire. And the RDS certificate is expiring on March 5th, 2020. It's coming quickly. So if you're using Postgres now and you're doing verify CA or verify full for your SSL mode, You need to update your certificates soon or you won't be able to connect to your database again. Get the new certificates, right? That day is coming and we can't move it, right? Those certificates are expiring. Then you need to authenticate. Through RDS Postgres, we have three different ways of authenticating. We have identity and access management, our IAM, or What we newly released is Kerberos authentication or Active Directory, and the good old tried and true Postgres local accounts. For IAM, that ties in with all the rest of the IAM authentication and and tokens that you use throughout your other AWS services. And how this works when you configure it, you make an API or a CLI request out to IAM, and you get a token a big long string, and you'd use that for a password when you're connecting. So I'd connect as a user, Jim, and I'll get that token, and that token's only good for 15 minutes. Right? So this way, from a security standpoint, that expires. Right? But keep in mind that IAM authentication, based off your instance types, there is a, a max number of connections per second. So if you don't have good connection pooling for your application, it may not be the right fit for you. You should set up good connection pooling. You don't wanna have thousands of connections per second to your database, that's pretty expensive. But if that's the way your application works today, that may not be the right fit for you. But what we recently released was Kerberos authentication. If you're in a Active Directory environment, this might be the right fit. It's extremely fast for logins, right? The the requirement is though that your client machine has to be in that same directory. And when you set this up, you have to do this part once. You need to create a directory, some sort of active directory, You can set this up with trust between your corporate directory and and this one, but it has to be using the AWS Manage Active Directory service. And then what you have to do is set up an IAM role with privileges using the Amazon RDS directory service access privilege. Again, you only have to do this once, right? And then what you do is for each instance that you want to use Kerberos authentication, you need to connect that directory and role out to that database instance, right? So you have to do this once per per database instance. And then once you do that, you'll see that, that directory inside of there. So our, our active domain name is dat317.aws.reinvent.com. Right. So once you do that, you need to add users. We need to link our, our users in the Active Directory out to Postgres roles. So we create a role. All right. So we'll create a role that matches our, our Active Directory user, jim at dat317.aws.reinvent.com. And it has to have login privileges. But keep in mind that regardless of how you created that domain name, when you're creating this role, that domain name after the at sign has to be in all caps. And then the username, the case actually matters. So if you created a username with a capital K for Kevin, you have to secure that same role here with a capital K. So once you've done that, you need to grant it RDS-AD privileges, right? By do, once you do that for each of those roles, now I could log in with my gym account on my Windows client without a, using Kerberos authentication. And I don't have to type in my passwords. Right? But once I've connected, I still need to be able to access things. So I need to be able to get select privileges on my events table in order to be able to query it. By default, I won't be able to do that, right? So I'd have to grant select on events to Kevin at dat317.aws.reinvent.com. Gets a bit tedious, right? So you don't really want to be doing that. What you want to do is create some other role. Here we could create 80 users. You might have BI users or some other role. Grant select privileges to that role and then put those individual logins, those users, into that role. So this way you're not doing it for each individual user with this long string for that Active Directory role. But we're going to be doing this a lot. We have many users across many instances. So let's create a stored procedure to do all these steps. Otherwise, it's going to be error-prone. So first thing we're going to do is create that procedure going to take in two parameters, a user and a domain. And for our organization, we could default that domain to the actual domain name. Because for our stored procedure, it should always be dat317.aws.reinvent.com. We're then going to construct the, the full role name. So we're going to have vuser be the concatenation of puser the at sign, and the domain name. And we know it has to be uppercase, so let's just make sure it's uppercase here. Let's get rid of that error condition. And then we have to do good defensive programming, and we have to check to make sure it's not null. In Postgres, unlike other databases like Oracle, when you concatenate something, something with a null, you always get a null. So we don't have to check the P user and pdomain we only have to check the concatenation. If either one of them is null, the user is going to be null. Right. Another thing to keep in mind is the, the maximum length of a, n- a name or any name of any object inside of Postgres is 63 characters. So user names, table names, view names, 63 characters. So when your Active Directory administrator is creating the domain name, don't create a really long domain name and then have your your usernames being first name dot last name. You might get have some, some users where it won't fit within those 63 characters. Then we're gonna create our roles. We're gonna create the role with login privileges based off of that, and then grant it the RDS AD role and the AD users role. And here we're gonna use a function inside of Postgres called format with the percent capital I. What that is is it takes in a SQL identifier and if that string that comes in needs to be double quoted, it'll automatically do the double quoting for us. And Then finally we'll end that function and give it security definer rights. So something like this, we might create as our superuser account, but we might have other users want to be able to use it and we don't want to grant them super, super user privileges, By doing security-definer rights, it allows the person at its executing function to run it as the user that created it. But for most people, for most organizations, local authentication works just fine. There's some some organizations where you need the high security of of leveraging things like Kerberos or, or IAM, but local authentication is good fast, tried and true and it's just easy because it's there by default and just works. Problem is there's no password complexity. So we could create a user called report user with a strong password that expires. But once that user connects, you come along and change that password to weak password, right? Violating what our, our password complexity is. So we've released a new feature called restricted password management. That's off by default. But when you turn it on by setting in your parameter groups RDS.restrict password commands to one, then only members of RDS superuser or RDS password could change their passwords. So now when report user comes in and tries to change it to a weak password, that user gets an error that they can't change that password. So this way only restricted accounts could change those passwords. And that ties in perfectly with the AWS Servers, AWS Secrets Manager. Secrets Manager handles things like passwords in the full life cycle of those passwords. So when you need to be able to change those passwords on regular schedules and enforce complexity, it handles all of that for you, essentially being a password vault for you, including auditing whenever you go and read that password. It'll rotate those passwords on your schedule, 30, 60, 90 days. And it has built-in integration with RDS and Aurora Postgres. So this way, Secrets Manager will go ahead and change those passwords for, RDA, for the report user. And then for report user, in order to get that password, it makes an API call out to Secrets Manager in order to get that. Right? Giving you a secure, audited way to get those passwords and be able to tie it in with things like lambda functions without having to put that as a a configuration parameter. So when you're choosing your authentication method, you don't have to pick just one. You do have to choose whether or not you use IAM or Kerberos, that's an either or, but you don't have to just pick a single one. So sometimes you might want to use Kerberos authentication for humans connecting to the database for your DBAs and your service accounts on your application servers using local authentication with Secrets Manager. Right? Choose the right fit for what you need. Right? But we need to monitor and manage that further. Right? We need to make sure that what's ha- how we set it up is behaving the way we expect it to. There's a number of different services that work hand-in-hand in order to give you the visibility into your databases. It starts with enhanced monitoring. Enhanced monitoring gives you the view into your operating system running your database. So here you could see the CPU, the I.O., the memory, all the metrics that you'd expect if you're managing it yourself at the operating system level. And all that gets fed in and tied into CloudWatch metrics. So you could see it on a dashboard, either for an individual RDS instance through the RDS console, or you could create custom dashboards across your entire fleet. You may have tens or hundreds or thousands of Postgres databases and you can create a custom dashboard to see the CPU across all of them. But metrics are only good if you actually can react off of them. So you need to set up alarms. And CloudWatch alarms allows you to do that. So if you see things like CPU consistently being over 80%, you might want to get an email. Or if you didn't set up the auto scale on your storage and you're down to one gigabyte of storage, you want to know right away in order to be able to allocate more storage before your database goes down. CloudWatch alarms allows you to do that. But we don't always get a chance to be able to predict things when it's coming along with with those metrics coming along. Lots of times what happens is as a DBA, a user will come over and say, I ran this report last Friday and it was slow. First thing you say is, why didn't you tell me last Friday so I could go look? But, you know, they got busy, they didn't tell you. Right? With Performance Insights, you could do that. Performance Insights, if you enable it, and I recommend you do, uh, it allows you to look back at all the activity in the database for the last week by default. And you could turn that on to be able to keep two, up to two years of activity in your database. So you could go along to last Friday, drag and, and highlight over the time period of when the, that report was run, and drill down and see what was going on in the database at the time and drill down into the individual weight events. So for this particular one, you know, at the time there, we were running a a sort of procedure called load events. So it was doing a a load into the database, right? And we have a weight event called wall sender main because we have a replica. So of course, as you're doing a bulk load and you're replicating that's going to take up a lot of time and a lot of resources. So, if we were going to look at other things going on at the time, we could see what the database is waiting on, going back for that week or up to two years, and see down into individual wait events that's happening. One of the coolest things we recently released is integration of your Postgres logs into CloudWatch. Postgres writes a wealth of information into its arrow logs. Everything from checkpoint information to syntax errors, to audits. So if you enable PG audit in order to be able to look at the audit information inside your database that's all written out to the Postgres error logs. Traditionally it's been hard and tedious in order to be able to search through that. When it's in CloudWatch logs you're able to run queries across your logs going back in time and even across your entire fleet. So if you're a SaaS provider having a database per customer and you want to see if there's trends of all your customers having deadlocks or just one, you're able to run queries in order to be able to see that. We could also check whether or not auto violations are happening. So if that pesky user Jim, you wanted to see if he's actually doing something, we could search the error logs through that for this error audit Jim in order to see what he was running last Friday when he wasn't supposed to be connected to the database. He was supposed to be working from home that day and not connected to production, just to see what he was doing. But Postgres has yearly major releases. You know, Postgres 12 came out in early October. Postgres 11 came out uh, the, the September before that. Right? And every quarter on a, a regular schedule, it puts out minor releases. Those minor releases are simple patches. Right? They don't contain new functionality. They contain bug fixes and security fixes. Right? Other databases call minor versions, they might introduce new functionality. Postgres doesn't. It's just fixes. And those major versions do uh, in- introduce new functionality. Right? They may change system catalogs. They may change for- page formats. You do have to do a deeper testing along those because things change. You know, your queries might behave differently. Your query plans may change. Right. You know, how Postgres interprets the SQL may change. You have to do a full regression test when you do those major version upgrades. But minor versions are just patches. So do them. When you're doing minor version upgrades, it's typically very fast. And you have some control over the time of how long that takes. So it does a normal shutdown of the database. And that normal shutdown will wait for any in-flight transactions to stop before it shuts down. So don't try to do a minor version upgrade during your ETL load jobs. It's going to take a while. But try to quiesce the database, and that'll allow it to happen faster. And then the binaries are simply replaced. It doesn't touch the data directory. It's just replacing the binaries. And then the database is started back up again. That could happen manually where you control it fully, or you could set it to be automatic. And if you set it to be automatic, You could do this by doing auto minor version upgrades. So when Postgres releases a new minor version, and once we put that out in RDS and it's been out for a while, we'll mark it as preferred for that major version. Once we mark that as preferred, during your next maintenance window, we'll upgrade your database to the newest minor version that's preferred. Turn this on unless you have extreme uptime requirements where you can't take those couple-minute outages during those windows once a quarter, turn this on. But major version upgrades are bigger. So test that. Run it in dev. Run it in test. Do performance testing on there. What we recently released are multi-major version upgrades. Before, if we wanted to go from 9.4 to 11, we'd have to go to 9.5 to 9.6 to 10 to 11 and take outages for each step along the way. Now we could go directly from 9.4 to 11. But the time it takes is dependent more on the number of objects that are in your database than the overall size. So if you have a, a single database with a terabyte in size with a billion tables, and yes, it could have a billion tables in there. There's a gentleman here that actually tested that. Right? Um, you know, that's going to take a long time. Longer than if you had a 10 terabyte database with 100 tables. That's because Postgres will be linking in the individual files into the system objects during the upgrade process. So it's a perfect time to prune any objects that you don't need. You know, over the course of time, DBAs might have scratch tables as they make copies of things as they're fixing data. Clean all that up. That will affect the time that it takes to do upgrades. And also make sure you've taken a recent backup because Postgres will do, what we'll do for, for RDS Postgres is take a snapshot just before that backup. Right? And that'll affect your overall upgrade time. Right? And then it'll take another snapshot afterwards because during the time it's being upgraded, point-in-time recovery is not, uh, not available. And then afterwards, you have to do two things. One is create a new parameter group for that new version. You should have that already throughout your testing. Right, so you apply the new parameter group. And more importantly, you need to analyze your database. You have to gather statistics in the new version. Your statistics that the optimizer uses in order to generate the query plans are not upgraded. You need to rebuild those. New cool feature that we released are transportable databases. So if you are something like a SAS provider that might have a database per per tenant right? and some of your smaller tenants all fit on a single instance. One of those tenants gets bigger and you want to move to another database instance, their own dedicated database. Transportable databases lets us do that a lot faster than doing a dump and reload. What we'll do is we'll pull out the actual data files themselves and stream that over to another database server and relink them into the individual objects themselves. Do that through a a new extension called pg-transport, So this way you don't have to rebuild indexes or do other things. It allows you to do it extremely fast for for large databases. And while that's happening, the source database is still available in read-only mode. So you don't have a total outage. You're still able to access that source database while it's being transported to the new location. Let's talk about building an application. When you're talking about doing things in, inside of Postgres, no matter which managed service you choose, whether it's going to be RDS Postgres, Aurora Postgres, or serverless, right. it's still Postgres. Right. So you, we want to be able to build an application leveraging Postgres, and then, then it becomes more of a deployment option. Right. So let's have a simple, simple application where we get some JSON documents in. For this example, we're going to use JSON because it's cool; everybody likes JSON. But this will, most of these things will apply to other data types and other types of data. Just, you know, just an example. But we have some partners and and some of our internal service teams putting JSON documents into an S3 bucket, and then we need to be able to make that available for users to be able to run queries on it. Right. So Something that you could do is when a file ends up in an S3 bucket, it triggers a lambda function, and that lambda reads that file in and inserts it into Postgres, all happening automatically. That works perfectly fine, but you know it's inefficient, because we're moving that data twice. It'd be much better if, after that file has hit S3, it's triggering a lambda function, and that lambda function tells Postgres but that file's there and RDS Postgres will come and pull that file in directly so we don't have to move it twice. Right. That's available now with S3 import. So if you had a, 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 you know on-premise system where you're used to dropping a file on a server and using the Postgres copy command in order to load it in directly, you can now do that with the S3, an S3 bucket and load it directly in. It's available for, through the AWS 3 extension and it follows along the copy syntax of Postgres. Right? And that's, you're, you're able to secure access to those S3 buckets in one or two ways using IAM or through security credentials. So if you're setting it up for production, you want to use IAM. Right? First thing you have to do is create a, an IAM policy to give access to the S3 bucket. We'll then create an IAM role for RDS. In order for the RDS instance to be able to uh, use IAM. And then we'll attach that role to that policy that we created. And then finally, we'll connect that role to the RDS instance. All right. All right. Again, for if you're doing this in production, this is how you want to set it up. Right. It's a one to, you only have to do this once, that last section, once per instance. The rest of it, you only have to do once per region. But if you just want to test S3 import, you could use security credentials right, in your development environment. It's more like a username and password. You know. It's easier to set up because it, you're just passing it in. And we have a, a helper function called create AWS credentials in order to send that in. And it's all part of the uh, S3 import function itself. But in this case, you're responsible for the key management. So you'll have to be able to maintain that key in a secure way. But let's load that data in. First thing we want to do is put it into a staging table. We're getting data from partners and an unknown source. Just as good practice, I'll never load that into my main table itself directly. If I'm getting data from somewhere I don't know, I'm loading it into a staging table. And Postgres lets us do this as an unlogged table. Those unlogged tables are not written to the pr- transaction log, so it's not replicated out or put into our backups. It's just there in a local instance, but it, we have our staging table. We'll then create a stored procedure called load staging. that takes in three parameters, region, bucket, and file. Then what we want to do is truncate that staging table to make sure there's no records left in there and then we'll load that in with the table import from S3 function. That has a a few parameters on it, the first one being event staging. That's the table that we're gonna load. The second one, which is an empty string, that's a list of columns that you're loading. Staging table only has a single column, so we don't have to put a list there. It's just gonna load in all the columns, which is one. And that third parameter, which is empty, are the Postgres copy command options. So if you have a different delimiter right, that you want to use, instead of you want to use a pipe delimiter, instead of like tab, or you have comma delimited, or a different null indicator, you would put it in that parameter. And then finally, we have the location of where that file is. And there's another helper function, create S3 URI, that'll create that from the three parameters that we passed it in. Then we want to load that into our main table, right? So we're going to create an events table that has two, two columns in there, one being an ID, which is a, of type UUID. And we'll generate that ID so we don't have to do it on the application server. And an event, which is of type JSON. But we know we're going to have a lot of events, so we're going to hash, hash partition that. Postgres has hash partitioning, list partitioning, range partitioning. It's a lot easier if you know your data, your table's going to get really big to partition it ahead of time. And uh, add partitions is a lot simpler to do than it is to take an unpartitioned table and make it partitioned. So if you know you're going to get there in a relatively near future, partition it. All right. And we'll start with two simple hash partitionings. All right. Nice and simple, and we're able to split those later if we need to. Then we'll create two indexes. We'll create a unique index on the ID, because sometimes we're looking it up by that UUID. And then we're creating a GIN index. That's a specialized index inside of Postgres. And what that does on on a JSON document, it allows us to index the entire document. So we're able to search on any of the elements inside of that document, and we don't have to pick individual keys to, to, to index. The GIN index will let us do that. Then we need to load that. So we'll create a procedure called load events. First thing it's going to do is call load staging. And if there's any errors along the way, we're going to catch that exception and roll back. So if we remember from that load staging function, the first thing we did was truncate that table. One of Postgres's hidden superpowers is things like truncate, you could roll back. It's transactional. Right? So in the event of being an error, anything that was in there and that we truncated away will end up back there for you. Postgres other DDL is transactional too, like drop table. Saved me more than a few times. We'll then load each of those rows. Right? The first thing that we're going to do is we're going to scrub that JSON because we're getting it in from an unknown source, and we'll get into detail what Scrub JSON is doing. And then, if Scrub JSON returns null, we'll insert that into a, a bad record table so we can come back later and analyze that to find out why, what happened. Right. Else, we'll put it into the main events table. So that Scrub JSON table takes in that text field, right, and it's going to return JSON and. Our partner didn't really understand what JSON is. So instead of putting everything double quotes around all these keys, they put in single quotes, and that's not valid JSON. So in this function, we're able to replace that, right? And then we'll parse that JSON, right? And then if there's some sort of error, we'll catch that and we'll return null. But if you notice, this doesn't look like all the other sort of procedures that I, I've shown. This is a different language. This is JavaScript. Postgres has multiple stored procedural languages. So here we could do it in PLV8. When you're dealing with things like JSON documents, JavaScript works extremely well for that. The other thing, by catching this exception in here, it's actually a performance improvement. When you're doing exception handling inside of PLPG SQL, it uses the Postgres engine, and it does its exception handling using sub-transactions. or save points, essentially, under the covers. Those are very heavyweight operations. By doing the exception handling inside of the PLV8 uh, function, it's using the V8 engine in order to do that exception handling. Gave me a 20% performance gain. So it is about choosing the right tool for the job. There's a number of uh, sort procedural languages available for RDS Postgres. From PLPG SQL, the vast majority of your functions will be PLPG SQL. Some of them will be SQL. Then if you have specific types of needs for something like Perl or JavaScript, it's available to you. But again, most of the things are going to be PLV8. Right? Most of the times you could use that same hammer, right? but sometimes it'll be a little bit easier to use a screwdriver to get that screw in the board than it is to use a hammer. Right? So choose the right thing for the right tool for the right job. It's available for you. And then when you're querying it Postgres has parallel query. As your databases start getting bigger and bigger you want to be able to leverage multiple cores for doing those queries. So you, it does support parallel scans and joins and aggregations and appends so when you have union queries you can run that in parallel. Even to the point where Postgres here for a simple select count star from our events table do a parallel index only scan. But we're dealing with JSON data. So available in Postgres 12 is JSON path. So traditionally, the the legacy syntax for, for Postgres querying those JSON documents, you had to do it against JSON snippets. So if we wanted to look for events, right, for the event that happened on July 16th, 1969, we have to compare it to a, a, a smaller JSON document. And it's not very intuitive of what that means. We have this at greater than sign, which means contains, where the event document contains this other s- subdocument. right? It works, it's extremely flexible, right, and very robust, but it's not very intuitive. But, you know, the, C- the SQL 19 sp- 2016 spec gave us a way to look at that in a different way. And that's available in Postgres 12. Right? So now, in Postgres 12, we could have that event contains the JSON path where date equals July 16th, 1969. And we don't have to create that as a subdocument. A little bit easier to tell what's going on. Right? Another cool feature in... Postgres 12 is generated columns. So if we have a event document, we're always searching by date. And not just a single date, we might be looking over a date range. And if you had to parse that JSON document to get out the date, to get everything that happened last year, that's a pretty expensive operation. So we wanna pull that out of the database, uh, the document itself. So we could have done that in the past using triggers. Triggers are pretty heavyweight. Generated columns lets us do that at near the same speed of just pre-populating it ourselves. Right? So you do that by doing a generated column based off of another column that's in that table itself. So here we call the, the getDate function, and we'll store that so this way we could search off of those generated columns. It's useful for these things like event date where it's frequently computed and pulling that out and you're frequently querying off of that. And it is significantly less overhead than doing it over a trigger. So that getDate function will just call that same JSON path query in order to get that date out. Here we're using a SQL function instead of a PLPGSQL function. If you have a simple function that boils down to a single statement like that, do it as a SQL function instead of a PLPG SQL function. Postgres will handle that at the parser, not at the executor, giving it, having it behave a lot more like a macro. Right? giving you more performance, right? So this way it doesn't have to context switch out to the PLPG SQL engine in order to execute that. So remember, when you're setting up your uh, managed Postgres instance, turn on multi-AZ, right? Right? Enable backups longer than those seven days. Turn on SSL connections and force them. Have a, a strong password, right? Leverage the tools that are there for you apply those minor version upgrades upga- on a regular basis, and use Postgres syntax. Don't just stick to select, insert, update, delete. There's a, a ton of really great features in there that you could leverage from the application side, from specialized data types to specialized functions, use them. If you want to learn more, uh, besides once you get at, uh, leave here at reInvent and you go home, right, there's training courses available right, for a number of different database engines. And now, before, as you were moving to AWS and you were looking for certifications and you were a DBA, you didn't have something for you, now we have a, a certified database specialty. It's in beta now. Check that out. You want to learn more about some of the things we talked about? There's a, a number of different sessions available here this week, uh, going deeper on Aurora, talking deeper about Aurora storage, how that four or six quorum works. Or you decided to run Postgres on EC2 and you want to move it to Aurora Postgres, how do you do that? Or if you want to go deeper on to Active Directory and how you tie it in with the directory service. With that, I'm going to take questions over here on the side. Thank you.